Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tonight, I will be reading This Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 Amory, Son of Beatrice Amory Blaine inherited from his mother every trait except the stray, inexpressible few that made him worthwhile. His father, 
an ineffectual, inarticulate man, with a taste for Byron, and a habit of drowsing over the Encyclopedia Britannica, grew wealthy at thirty through the death of two elder brothers, successful Chicago brokers, and in the first flush of feeling that the world was his, went to Bar Harbor and met Beatrice O'Hara. In consequence, Stephen Blaine handed down to posterity his height of just under six feet and his tendency to waver at crucial moments, these two abstractions appearing in his son Amory. For many years he hovered in the background of his family's life, an unassertive figure with a face half obliterated by lifeless, silky hair, continually occupied in taking care of his wife, continually harassed by the idea that he didn't and couldn't understand her. But Beatrice Blaine, there was a woman. Early pictures taken on her father's estate at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, or in Rome at the Sacred Heart Convent, an educational extravagance that in her youth was only for the daughters of the exceptionally wealthy, showed the exquisite delicacy of her features, the consummate art and simplicity of her clothes. A brilliant education she had, her youth passed in Renaissance glory. She was versed in the latest gossip of the older Roman families, known by name as a fabulously wealthy American girl to Cardinal Vittori and Queen Margherita, and more subtle celebrities that one must have had some culture even to have heard of. She learned in England to prefer whiskey and soda to wine, and her small talk was broadened in two senses during a winter in Vienna. All in all, Beatrice O'Hara absorbed the sort of education that would be quite impossible ever again, a tutelage measured by the number of things and people one could be contemptuous of and charming about, a culture rich in all arts and traditions, barren of all ideas, in the last of those days when the great gardener clipped the inferior roses to produce one perfect bud. In her less important moments, she returned to America, met Stephen Blaine and married him. This almost entirely because she was a little bit weary and a little bit sad. Her only child was carried through a tiresome season and brought into the world on a spring day in 96. When Amory was five, he was already a delightful companion for her. He was an auburn-haired boy with great handsome eyes, which he would grow up to in time, a facile imaginative mind and a taste for fancy dress. From his fourth to his tenth year, he did the country with his mother in his father's private car from Coronado, where his mother became so bored that she had a nervous breakdown in a fashionable hotel down to Mexico City where she took a mild, almost epidemic consumption. This trouble pleased her, and later she made use of it as an intrinsic part of her atmosphere, especially after several astounding bracers. So while more or less fortunate little rich boys were defying governesses on the beach at Newport, or being spanked or tutored or read to from Do and Dare or Franklin, Mississippi, Amory was biting acquiescent bellboys in the Waldorf, outgrowing a natural repugnance to chamber music and symphonies, and deriving a highly specialized education from his mother. Amory? Yes, Beatrice? 
such a quaint name for his mother. She encouraged it. Dear, don't think of getting out of bed yet. I've always suspected that early rising in early life makes one nervous. Clotilde is having your breakfast brought up. All right. I'm feeling very old today, Amory, she would sigh, her face a rare cameo of pathos, her voice exquisitely modulated, her hands as facile as Bernhardt's. My nerves are on edge, on edge. We must leave this terrifying place tomorrow and go searching for sunshine. Amory's penetrating green eyes would look out through tangled hair at his mother. Even at this age, he had no illusions about her. Amory? Oh, yes. I want you to take a red-hot bath, as hot as you can bear it, and just relax your nerves. You can read in the tub if you wish. She fed him sections of the fate gallant before he was ten. At eleven he could talk glibly, if rather reminiscently, of Brahms and Mozart and Beethoven. One afternoon, when left alone in the hotel at Hot Springs, he sampled his mother's apricot cordial, and as the taste pleased him, he became quite tipsy. This was fun for a while, but he essayed a cigarette in his exultation, and succumbed to a vulgar plebeian reaction. Though this incident horrified Beatrice, it also secretly amused her, and became part of what, in a later generation, would have been termed her line. This son of mine, he heard her tell a room full of awestruck, admiring women one day, is entirely sophisticated and quite charming, but delicate. We're all delicate here, you know. Her hand was radiantly outlined against her beautiful bosom. Then, sinking her voice to a whisper, she told them of the apricot cordial. They rejoiced, for she was a brave raconteuse. But many were the keys turned in sideboard locks that night against the possible defection of little Bobby or Barbara. These domestic pilgrimages were invariably in state, two maids, the private car, or Mr. Blaine when available, and very often, a physician. When Amory had the whooping cough, four disgusted specialists glared at each other, hunched around his bed. When he took scarlet fever, the number of attendants, including physicians and nurses, totaled fourteen. However, blood being thicker than broth, he was pulled through. The Blaines were attached to no city. They were the Blaines of Lake Geneva. They had quite enough relatives to serve in place of friends and an enviable standing from Pasadena to Cape Cod. But Beatrice grew more and more prone to like only new acquaintances, as there were certain stories, such as the history of her constitution and its many amendments, memories of her years abroad, that it was necessary for her to repeat at regular intervals. Like Freudian dreams, they must be thrown off, else they would sweep in and lay siege to her nerves. But Beatrice was critical about American women, especially the floating population of ex-Westerners. They have accents, my dear, she said. Not southern accents or Boston accents, not an accent attached to any locality, just an accent. She became dreamy. They pick up old, moth-eaten London accents that are down on their luck and have to be used by someone. They talk as an English butler might after several years in a Chicago Grand Opera company. She became almost incoherent. Suppose, time in every Western woman's life, 
she feels her husband is prosperous enough for her to have accent. They try to impress me, my dear. Though she thought of her body as a mass of frailties, she considered her soul quite as ill and therefore important in her life. She had once been a Catholic, but discovering that priests were infinitely more attentive when she was in process of losing or regaining faith in Mother Church, she maintained an enchantingly wavering attitude. Often she deplored the bourgeois quality of the American Catholic clergy and was quite sure that had she lived in the shadow of the great continental cathedrals, her soul would still be a thin flame on the mighty altar of Rome. Still, next to doctors, priests were her favourite sport. Ah, Bishop Whiston, she would declare. I do not want to talk of myself. I can imagine the stream of hysterical women fluttering at your doors, beseeching you to be simpatico. Then, after an interlude filled by the clergyman, but my mood is oddly dissimilar. Only to bishops and above did she divulge her clerical romance. When she had first returned to her country, there had been a pagan Swinburnian young man in Asheville for whose passionate kisses and unsentimental conversations she had taken a decided penchant. They had discussed the matter pro and con with an intellectual romancing quite devoid of sappiness. Eventually, she had decided to marry for background, and the young pagan from Asheville had gone through a spiritual crisis, joined the Catholic Church, and was now Monsignor Darcy. Indeed, Mrs. Blaine, he is still delightful company, quite the Cardinal's right-hand man. Amory will go to him one day, I know, breathed the beautiful lady, and Monsignor Darcy will understand him as he understood me. Amory became thirteen, rather tall and slender, and more than ever on to his Celtic mother. He had tutored occasionally, the idea being that he was to keep up at each place, taking up the work where he left off. Yet as no tutor ever found the place he left off, his mind was still in very good shape. What a few more years of his life would have made of him is problematical. However, Four hours out from land, Italy bound with Beatrice. His appendix burst, probably from too many meals in bed, and after a series of frantic telegrams to Europe and America, to the amazement of the passengers, the great ship slowly wheeled round and returned to New York to deposit Amory at the pier. You will admit that if it was not life, it was magnificent. After the operation, Beatrice had a nervous breakdown that bore a suspicious resemblance to delirium tremens, and Amory was left in Minneapolis, destined to spend the ensuing two years with his aunt and uncle. There, the crude, vulgar air of Western civilization first catches him in his underwear, so to speak. A kiss for Amory. His lip curled when he read it. I'm going to have a bobbing party, it said, on Thursday, December the 17th, at five o'clock and I would like it very much if you could come. Yours truly, Myra St. Clair, RSVP. He had been two months in Minneapolis, and his chief struggle had been concealing from the other boys at school how particularly superior he felt himself to be. Yet this conviction was built upon shifting sands. He had shown off one day in French class, he was in senior French class, 
to the utter confusion of Mr. Reardon, whose accent Amory damned contemptuously and to the delight of the class. Mr. Reardon, who had spent several weeks in Paris ten years before, took his revenge on the verbs whenever he had his book open. At another time, Amory showed off in history class with quite disastrous results. For the boys there were his own age, and they shrilled innuendos at each other all the following week. Amory ingeniously tried to retrieve himself by blundering on purpose. Two years before, he had commenced a history of the United States which, though it only got as far as the colonial wars, had been pronounced by his mother completely enchanting. His chief disadvantage lay in athletics, but as soon as he discovered that it was the touchstone of power and popularity at school, he began to make furious, persistent efforts to excel in the winter sports, and with his ankles aching and bending in spite of his efforts, he skated valiantly around the Laurelly rink every afternoon, wondering how soon he would be able to carry a hockey stick without getting it inexplicably tangled in his skates. The invitation to Miss Myra Sinclair's bobbing party spent the morning in his coat pocket, where it had an intense physical affair with a dusty piece of peanut brittle. During the afternoon, he brought it to light with a sigh, and after some consideration and a preliminary draft in the back of Collar and Daniel's first ear Latin, composed an answer. My dear Miss Sinclair, your truly charming invitation for the evening of next Thursday was truly delightful to receive this morning. I will be charm and enchanted indeed to present my compliments on next Thursday evening. Faithfully, Amory Blaine. On Thursday, therefore, he walked pensively along the slippery, shovel-scraped sidewalks and came in sight of Myra's house on the half-hour after five, a lateness which he fancied his mother would have favoured. He waited on the doorstep with his eyes half-closed and planned his entrance with precision. He would cross the floor, not too hastily, to Mrs. Sinclair, and say with exactly the correct modulation, My dear Mrs. Sinclair, I'm frightfully sorry to be late, but my maid. He paused there and realised he would be quoting. But my uncle and I had to see a fellow. Yes, I've met your enchanting daughter at dancing school. Then he would shake hands, using that slight half-foreign bow, with all the starchy little females, and nod to the fellows who would be standing round, paralysed into rigid groups for mutual protection. A butler, one of the three in Minneapolis, swung open the door. Amory stepped inside and divested himself of cap and coat. He was mildly surprised not to hear the shrill squawk of conversation from the next room, and he decided it must be quite formal. He approved of that, as he approved of the butler. Miss Myra, he said. To his surprise, the butler grinned horribly. Oh yeah, he declared, she's here. He was unaware that his failure to be cockney was ruining his standing. Amory considered him coldly. But, continued the butler, his voice rising unnecessarily, she's the only one what is here. The party's gone. Amory gasped in sudden horror. What? She's been waiting for Amory Blaine. That's you, ain't it? Her mother says that if you showed up by 5.30, you too was to go after him and the Packard. Amory's despair was crystallized by the appearance of Myra herself, bundled to the ears in a polo coat, her face plainly sulky, her voice pleasant only with difficulty. 
Omira. He described the state of his vitality. Well, you got here anyways. Well, I'll tell you. I guess you don't know about the auto accident, he romanced. Myra's eyes opened wide. Who was it to? Well, he continued desperately. Uncle and aunt and I. Was anyone killed? Amory paused and then nodded. Your uncle? Alarm. Oh no, just a horse. A sort of grey horse. At this point, the butler snickered. Probably killed the engine, he suggested. Amory would have put him on the rack without a scruple. We'll go now, said Myra coolly. You see, Amory, the bobs were ordered for five and everybody was here, so we couldn't wait. Well, I couldn't help it, could I? So Mama said for me to wait till half past five. We'll catch the bobs before it gets to the mini haha club, Amory. Amory's shredded poise dropped from him. He pictured the happy party jingling along snowy streets, the appearance of the limousine, the horrible public descent of him and Myra before sixty reproachful eyes. His apology, a real one this time. He sighed aloud. What? inquired Myra. Nothing. I was just yawning. Are we going to surely catch them before they get there? He was encouraging a faint hope that they might slip into the Minnehaha Club and meet the others there, be found in blasé seclusion before the fire and quite regain his lost attitude. Oh, sure, Mike. We'll catch him, all right. Let's hurry. He became conscious of his stomach. As he stepped into the machine, he hurriedly slapped the paint of diplomacy over a rather box-like plan he had conceived. It was based upon some trade lass gleaned at dancing school to the effect that he was awful good-looking and English, sort of. Myra, he said, lowering his voice and choosing his words carefully, I beg a thousand pardons. Can you ever forgive me? She regarded him gravely, his intent green eyes, his mouth, that to her thirteen-year-old arrow-collar taste was the quintessence of romance. Yes, Mara could forgive him very easily. Why, yes, sure. He looked at her again, and then dropped his eyes. He had lashes. I'm awful, he said sadly. I'm different. I don't know why I make faux pas. Because I don't care, I suppose. Then recklessly. I've been smoking too much. I've got tobacco heart. Myra pictured an all-night tobacco debauch with Amory pale and reeling from the effect of nicotined lungs. She gave a little gasp. Oh, Amory, don't smoke. You'll stunt your growth. I don't care, he persisted gloomily. I got it. I got the habit. I've done a lot of things that if my family knew. He hesitated giving her imagination time to picture dark horrors. I went to the burlesque show last week. Myra was quite overcome. He turned the green eyes on her again. You're the only girl in town I like much, he exclaimed in a rush of sentiment. You're simpatico. Myra was not sure that she was, but it sounded stylish, though vaguely improper. Thick dusk had descended outside, and as the limousine made a sudden turn, she was jolted against him. Their hands touched. You shouldn't smoke, Amory, she whispered. Don't you know that? He shook his head. Nobody cares. Myra hesitated. I care. Something stirred within Amory. Oh, yes, you do. You've got a crush on Froggy Parker. I guess everybody knows that. No, I haven't. 
very slowly. A silence while Amory thrilled. There was something fascinating about Myra, shut away here cosily from the dim, chill air. Myra, a little bundle of clothes, with strands of yellow hair curling out from under her skating cap. Because I've got a crush too. He paused, for he heard in the distance the sound of young laughter, and peering through the frosted glass along the lamp-lit street, he made out the dark outline of the bobbing party. He must act quickly. He reached over with a violent, jerky effort and clutched Myra's hand, her thumb to be exact. Tell him to go to the Minnehaha straight, he whispered. I want to talk to you. I got to talk to you. Myra made out the party ahead, had an instant vision of her mother, and then, alas for convention, glanced into the eyes beside. Turn down this side street, Richard, and drive straight to the Minnehaha Club, she cried through the speaking tube. Amory sank back against the cushions with a sigh of relief. I can kiss her, he thought. I'll bet I can. I'll bet I can. Overhead the sky was half crystalline, half misty, and the night around was chill and vibrant with rich tension. From the country club, steps, the rows stretched away. Dark creases on the white blanket. Huge heaps of snow lining the sides like the tracks of giant moles. They lingered for a moment on the steps and watched the white holiday moon. Pale moons like that one, Amory made a vague gesture, make people mysterious. You look like a young witch with her cap off and her hair sort of must. Her hands clutched at her hair. Oh, leave it. It looks good. They drifted up the stairs and Myra led the way into the little den of his dreams, where a cosy fire was burning before a big sink-down couch. A few years later, this was to be a great stage for Amory, a cradle for many an emotional crisis. Now they talked for a moment about bobbing parties. There's always a bunch of shy fellas, he commented, sitting at the tail of the bob, sort of lurking and whispering and pushing each other off. And there's always some crazy cross-eyed girl. He gave a terrifying imitation. She's always talking hard, sorta, to the chaperone. You're such a funny boy, puzzled Myra. What do you mean? Amory gave immediate attention on his own ground at last. Oh, always talking about crazy things. Why don't you come skiing with Marilyn and I tomorrow? I don't like girls in the daytime, he said shortly. And then, thinking this a bit abrupt, he added, but I like you. He cleared his throat. I like you first and second and third. Myra's eyes became dreamy. What a story this would make to tell Marilyn. Here on the couch with this wonderful-looking boy, the little fire, the sense that they were alone in the great building. Myra capitulated. The atmosphere was too appropriate. I like you the first twenty-five, she confessed, her voice trembling. And Froggy Parker, twenty-six. Froggy had fallen twenty-five places in one hour. As yet, he had not even noticed it. But Amory, being on the spot, leaned over very quickly and kissed Myra's cheek. He had never kissed a girl before, and he tasted his lips curiously, as if he had munched some new fruit. Then their lips brushed like young wild flowers in the wind. We're awful, rejoiced Myra gently. She slipped her hand into his. Her head drooped against his shoulder. Sudden revulsion seized Amory, disgust, loathing for the whole incident. 
He desired frantically to be away, never to see Mara again, never to kiss anyone. He became conscious of his face and hers, of their clinging hands, and he wanted to creep out of his body and hide somewhere safe out of sight, up in the corner of his mind. Kiss me again, her voice came out of a great void. I don't want to, he heard himself saying. There was another pause. I don't want to, he repeated passionately. Myra sprang up, her cheeks pink with bruised vanity, the great bow on the back of her head trembling sympathetically. I hate you, she cried. Don't you ever dare to talk to me again. What? stammered Amory. I'll tell Mama you kissed me. I will too. I'll tell Mama, and she won't let me play with you. Amory rose and stared at her, helplessly, as though she were a new animal of whose presence on earth he had not heretofore been aware. The door opened suddenly, and Myra's mother appeared on the threshold, fumbling with her lorgnette. Well, she began, the man at the desk told me you two children were up here. How do you do, Amory? Amory watched Myra and waited for the crash, but none came. The pout faded, the high pink subsided, and Myra's voice was placid as a summer lake when she answered her mother. Oh, we started so late, Mama, that I thought we might as well. He heard from below the shrieks of laughter and smelled the vapid odour of hot chocolate and tea cakes as he silently followed mother and daughter downstairs. The sound of the graphophone mingled with the voices of many girls humming the air and a faint glow was born and spread over him. Snapshots of the Young Egotist Amory spent nearly two years in Minneapolis. The first winter he wore moccasins that were born yellow, but after many applications of oil and dirt, assumed their mature color, a dirty greenish-brown. He wore a grey plaid Mackinac coat and a red toboggan cap. His dog, Count Del Monte, ate the red cap, so his uncle gave him a grey one that pulled down over his face. The trouble with this one was that you breathed into it and your breath froze. One day, the darn thing froze his cheek. He rubbed snow on his cheek, but it turned bluish-black just the same. The Count Del Monte ate a box of bluing once, but it didn't hurt him. Later, however, he lost his mind and ran madly up the street, bumping into fences, rolling in gutters, and pursuing his eccentric course out of Amory's life. Amory cried on his bed. Poor little Count, he cried. Oh, poor little Count. After several months, he suspected Count of a fine piece of emotional acting. Amory and Frog Parker considered that the greatest line in literature occurred in Act Three of Our Saint Lupin. They sat in the first row of the Wednesday and Saturday matinees. The line was, If one can't be a great artist or a great soldier, the next best thing is to be a great criminal. Amory fell in love again and wrote a poem. He was interested in whether McGovern of Minnesota would make the first or second All-American, how to do the card pass, how to do the coin pass, chameleon ties, how babies were born, and whether three-fingered brown was really a better pitcher than Christine Mathewson. Among other things, he read, For the Honor of the School, Little Women, Twice, The Common Law, Dangerous Dan McGrew, The Broad Highway, Three Times, The Fall of the House of Usher, Three Weeks, Mary Ware, the Little Colonel's Chum, 
the Police Gazette, and Jim Jam Gems. He had all the henty biases in history, and was particularly fond of the cheerful murder stories of Mary Roberts Reinhardt. School ruined his French and gave him a distaste for standard authors. His masters considered him idle, unreliable, and superficially clever. He collected locks of hair from many girls. He wore the rings of several. Finally, he could borrow no more rings, owing to his nervous habit of chewing them out of shape. This, it seemed, usually aroused the jealous suspicions of the next borrower. All through the summer months, Amory and Fogg Parker went each week to the stock company. Afterward, they would stroll home in the balmy air of August night, dreaming along Hennepin and Nicollet Avenues, through the crowd. Amory wondered how people could fail to notice that he was a boy marked for glory, and when faces of the throng turned toward him and ambiguous eyes stared into his, he assumed the most romantic of expressions and walked on the air cushions that lie on the asphalts of fourteen. Always, after he was in bed, there were voices, indefinite, fading, enchanting, just outside his window, and before he fell asleep he would dream one of his favourite waking dreams, the one about becoming a great halfback, or the one about the Japanese invasion, when he was rewarded by being made the youngest general in the world. It was always the becoming he dreamed of, never the being. This, too, was quite characteristic of Amory. Good night.